All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. Lord willing, we'll wrap up <clears throat> chapter 26 tonight. Marsha, I dodged a bullet with the new Bible on Sunday, but now we're at the one end of the book, so uh, we'll see how it goes. Genesis 26, starting in verse 34, we're actually going to read through the next chapter to verse 5. Genesis 26, 34 through Genesis 27, verse 5, as we look at the mystery of Jacob and Esau, and really just the beginning of this mystery of Jacob and Esau, uh, as there's quite a bit that we will continue to reference back to even after we've read these verses. Genesis 26, starting in verse 34, says, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out to the field, and take me some venison, and make me savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. And Rebekah heard when Isaac spake to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison, and to bring and to bring it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. We're thankful, Father, for the study through Genesis and what it has meant to us thus far. We ask, Father, though it is a very busy week, no doubt, that you would help us to remove the distractions from our hearts and from our minds, to leave our to-do list at the door, that we would be fed heartily this evening, that we would be full, that we would be equipped and strengthened to get us through to the next appointed time in which we can open up this sacred word and be fed once more. We ask, Father, your blessings upon our nation, though we don't deserve it. Your blessings upon our homes, though we don't deserve it. Your blessings in Ukraine, the situation there, as well as with the mission fronts, Lord, on all, on all fronts. We ask for your guidance and your leadership concerning our church and our business meetings and the decisions that we also have to make uh, monthly and, and what uh, more specifically what lies ahead in just a few weeks with the concerns uh, that we've laid out, Father. We ask that we do make it a matter of prayer that we also, Father, would be blessed with immediate application of the lessons that we learn here this night, that we ask, Father, again, that our membership and our visitors would be free to return again to the next appointed time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, immediately, uh, I find it interesting. Uh, of course, Isaac admits in the text that he's old and he doesn't know the day of his death, and, and we'll see in a minute, he certainly didn't know the day of his death. He wasn't uh, what we would probably call anywhere near his death at this, at this exact point, uh, but we'll give the evidence of that in a moment. But when he's at the point of death or at the point of, of, of needing to be cared for, I guess is the more specific way to, to reference it here, he cries out for deer, for venison, bring me that meat that I love. And I can't help but think of Paul when he writes, uh, as he's locked up and he asks for his cloak and his parchments. Those are the things he loved, not necessarily maybe the cloak, maybe it was his favorite cloak, I don't know, but the parchment, the word of God, the scriptures that he uh, had studied that had been made real unto him. He desired to have it close and near because it was that in which he loved. 
I'm afraid we see a revelation of Isaac's heart. And though we saw a good thing, certainly, uh, the last time that we were together in the last portion of Genesis 26, uh, we see a lot from those who call themselves God's people, whether they are or aren't. In times of trial, we see their heart. We see what they run to first. We saw with the initial famine, the grievous famine, where Abraham ran to, a lie that he had prepared in his and Sarah's heart before they had even left Ur of Chaldees. We saw again when things got tough, a lie presented itself as the easy way out, the go-to in the tough times or the perilous times or those uh, ugly situations. And the very reason why we're studying these questions for Christians in perilous times on Sundays is to... I hate to use the phrase get ahead of it because we're always in it, but to think of those things now before those real trials set in so that we've written upon our hearts the way in which the Lord would have for us to respond. If he does not change and he doesn't, he's immutable, then he's already laid out for us what we are to do. And there's nothing preventing us to read and understand and prepare ourselves for what it is that we are to do in those difficult or perilous times. And sadly, here with Isaac, as he feels death approaching, and again, he's incorrect, uh, what he loves, what he desires is the meat of his son's boat. The effort or the strength or the the, uh, depiction of everything Esau had made for himself and made of himself, not spirituality, uh, not to be gathered near the altar that we just saw him build, not to be taken near those wells that the Lord saw fit to use him to open up, Uh, but that he be taken care of by his son's meat. We previously discussed at some length God's decisions to establish the promised seed or the messianic line and uh, promises through Jacob rather than Esau, even before the two boys were born. And we need to be reminded of that as we start to look at this mystery because it's not a mystery to God, Jacob and Esau, but it is a mystery to man. Uh, And it's one that, as we mentioned at the onset of, I think it was Genesis 25, that this mystery spills over into the doctrine of election, and it spills over into our understanding of Romans and our understanding of of how the Lord would would use those that he sees fit to use and how it is that it could be uh, salvation by faith and not by works. And it just continues to overflow in confusion and mystery, but not to God. And it was never laid out that way. It's literally laid out in the text that before the boys were born, God knew where the messianic line would come from. God knew who it was he was going to use. We hear that and we say, sir, sure. Maybe we've told ourselves that because the writer has made this clear, the writer already knew how it worked out, so he wrote it. So maybe this is ad lib. It's not. It's the inspired word of God. The same inspired word of God that makes these prophetic statements in the New Testament. Uh, We understand that God is involved here from our study of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that this is profitable for us to understand, not to look away from, but to dive into and understand and write upon our hearts. The decision was clearly conveyed to Rebekah and Isaac, but the latter nevertheless favored Esau. As we discussed before their characters, as they, uh, they grew Uh, as they grew, it soon proved that God's decision was eminently wise. But that's not the reason for his decision. His decision was before their very birth. Jacob was a plain man, as we saw in Genesis 25, 27, which is a reference to how he was perfect and complete, not boring and gray. And Esau, on the other hand, in Genesis 25, 34, despised his own birthright. 
He despised the idea of a spiritual birthright, of spiritual responsibility. What a mystery it is for God to choose a, what we would refer to as a supplanter, as the name of uh, the meaning of his name, a supplanter. Why God would choose a supplanter rather than the firstborn, rather than, again, what we might call the rightful heir. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts, God's one being referenced here, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is never an instance in the Bible of criticism of Jacob, except on the lips of Esau and Laban, and both of them are unworthy witnesses. This is something for us to give a lot of thought to, something for us to be thankful for. The very fact, the very notion that God is in control, that his thoughts are above our... Can you imagine a God who gets caught up in the same pettiness we get caught up in? A God who's, uh, if, he, if he knew day like we know day, a God whose whole day is, is thrown off by the fact that he got caught in a long line at McDonald's in the morning. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but that's happened to me. I don't want to wait any longer than I have to. Now my whole day's ruined, and my engagement with every human being after that is dictated by how my whole day started, with or without coffee, with or without not enough creamer, with or without enough sleep. We don't have a God that lives that way, that decides that way, that navigates that way. That's something we can be thankful for, that his ways are higher than our ways. The first thing to consider with the, the text that we're using here tonight is Esau's marriage. And Matthew Henry wrote about Esau's marriage that Esau was foolish in marrying two wives together. And I'll just leave, leave that alone. And he goes on to say, and still more in marrying Canaanites, strangers to the blessing of Abraham and subject to the curse of Noah. It grieved his parents that he married without their advice and consent. And Matthew Henry's not adding to the text. That's literally what the text says, that they, this was grievous unto them, that it was a grief of mind. It says, it, and Matthew Henry continues, it grieved them that he married among those who had no religion. Children have little reason to expect God's blessing. Who do, they, who do that which is a grief of mind to good parents? Uh, I might take issue with the good part there at the end for Matthew Henry's quote. But it's nonetheless true that there's description in the, in the text when the Lord first puts Adam and Eve together that the man would leave mother and father and that the two would be one flesh. But before leaving mother and father, the man is with mother and father. The man has counsel with mother and father. Now, Adam certainly didn't, but the Lord wasn't laying out exactly what was going to happen with Adam because Adam didn't have a mother and father. He was laying out how it would be with us how it should be with us. Uh, if you're young and, and or even if you're older and unmarried, you should give great thought to what it means to be equally yoked, what it means to have good, strong counsel before uh, heading into a relationship with someone. Uh, and don't be foolish in thinking that, well, marriage and relationships are different. It's very, very untrue. Esau is described in Hebrews, and we've read this once before, but he's described in Hebrews 12, 16 as a fornicator and a profane person. It says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat 
sold his birthright. And we, of course, read that account. But again, this is the description of Esau, this man that Matthew Henry calls foolish and marrying two women, and not just two women, but two Canaanite women. Even Abraham said, don't pick a wife for Isaac from this land. He sent the faithful servant to his homeland, to his own people. This uh, this terminology used to describe Esau here, it means of the world. It means common thinking. This word later will be used to mean outside the temple. It means it, it, it's not of God's people. It's not of the intent of God, this decision or this way of living or this manner of thinking that is exhibited here by Esau. And again, it's not really surprising. He despised his birthright. He didn't want anything to do with it. And it's exercised by uh, his motives here. And we see in the text, And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Parents generally want good things for their children. And as we've seen of Abraham's insistence concerning a spouse for Isaac, the the one our child is to marry is of critical importance, and it should be. And we hit it pretty hard when we talked about it the first time that it's not just for when our daughters go to get married. It's just as important for us when our sons go to get married, who it is they've chosen, how it is they've chosen, and what their intent is in choosing. Marriage by design is the uniting of two into one, and it is to be for all time. It is a vow made before God himself. In these verses, Esau's carnality is confirmed. He didn't marry just one. He married two. And the way it's written, it was in his 40th year. So it wasn't that he fell in love again on down the line. It's more like he was going through and picking apples off a produce stand. I'm going to take this one, and I'm going to take this one. And he was at the wrong produce stand, folks. He shouldn't have been there looking for produce. He should have had a heart focused on what it is that God had for him. An intention that had been uh, come down through the ages since the friend of God, Abraham, sought out a wife for his own father, Isaac. I wonder if Isaac and Rebekah ever shared that story. Remember the time that servant came and plucked me up and brought me unto you? I don't know. The text certainly doesn't portray it, but do you do that? Do you tell the story of how you and your husband or you and your wife met and the hand of God being upon it? Because no doubt it was. If you're here and you're Christian, you understand that. You, you've experienced that. Uh, and I like to think that if you're still together, the, God, the hand of God most definitely was on it because two people in one home agreeing is so unlikely, so incredibly unlikely. But it is by design a uniting of two into one. Two very different people, two very different people of different upbringing, different, um, I'm trying to think of the words, not to stay out of trouble. Clark's smirking up here like I'm, I'm skating on thin ice, but I'm not. We, we're all brought up differently. So for Rebecca and I, as an example, because that's where I think Clark is expecting me to go, she was brought up uh, more like a Baptist. I was growing up not at all like a Baptist. And look at me now. But our upbringing was different. There was swearing in my home and not swearing in hers. There was meat on the bone in my home, but not meat on the bone in hers. There's a whole list of traditions uh, because of who they are and where they came from that I didn't have and vice versa with my family as well. 
So again, it's not just two different human beings, but two completely different inheritances coming together. And that's what we see with, uh, with where Rebecca goes from here. When we jumped ahead a few months back, we know that she's going to go send Esau back to her brother and so on and so forth. And that's who she is. That's the heritage that she had. And what did she turn to when it seemed that her husband Isaac didn't have a plan for Jacob? She turned to what she knew which is still what we do today. It's written in us. It's like a genetic code of, of sorts that we do what we know. We do what we've experienced. And so that's where she's about to head to. Where Isaac got the idea of Esau and the venison being this most desirous and most lovely thing, you can't give any credence to anything but the flesh because we have the same thing within us as well. In these verses, Esau's carnality confirmed, taking not one but two Hittite women, two daughters of Canaan, to wife uh, was presumptuous and showed his great lack of concern for God's promised blessings. I mean, if you think through, Isaac and Rebekah know that it's going to go through Jacob because God had already pronounced it. Maybe Esau knows this as well, but Esau also knows that there's a heritage behind him that's been greatly blessed of God, greatly used of God. He did hate his birthright. He did forsake his birthright, and it's not just because he wasn't chosen. And I think maybe that's where the ugliness comes from when folks who reject election is because I wasn't chosen, and therefore I have the right to rebel. You were going to rebel anyway. You were already rebelling to begin with. And this is Esau. All these blessings all around him and all these blessings that came down the family tree and all of the usefulness that God had for this family, and yet Esau desired two Canaanite women. Esau desired to hunt and sport, and as we said before, we have no proof that that was necessary for survival. It's just simply what he did. What do our actions say of us? What tells uh, the world and, and confirms to God what our desires are? What are we motivated by? What is it that we wave as a banner, as we talked about about a year, year and a half ago? What is it that we wave as our banner, as what drives our decision-making, what it is that we're most passionate for? Did Esau know better? Our text points out that he was 40 years old when he married them. Uh, that excludes the idea of youthful indiscretion. And it was a deliberate choice. It was made against the counsel of his parents as evidenced by the grief of mind statement unto Isaac and to Rebekah that we see in the text. And what impact could worldly wives have on a young man raised to worship God? What is it that Esau has now chosen to do with the, with the tribes that will come from his loins, with what will now come from his lineage in this decision? It's the, the, the heartbreaking part of young people today that don't think through the idea of sex before marriage or living with someone before marriage and all of these things that we pursue for the sheer idea of pleasure. We don't think about the fact that if something goes wrong, we've impacted the rest of our lives. I understand we live in a nation now that's divided state to state on whether it's okay or not to kill babies. So let me just go ahead and say it this way. Whether you keep or kill the baby you are going to be impacted for the rest of your lives. What Hollywood's not telling you is the grief that some of these mothers are experiencing that have killed their babies, and they don't get to run away from that. The blood, as we see in the beginning of Genesis, between Cain and Abel's battle, the blood cries out to God. Is this not something God will call out in remembrance? This instance when blood was shed, 
innocent, defenseless blood. And of course, a baby kept outside of wedlock also has its impact on the remainder of life. And I, I don't speak it of as a negative thing because I believe babies are a great blessing. I believe that uh, bad decision-making is unfortunate, but babies are a tremendous blessing. I believe young parents who aren't ready, they can be annoying, they can be a nuisance, they can uh, certainly be a grief unto their own parents and probably to their own children, but they've been greatly blessed of God himself if given a baby. Unfortunate circumstances aside, it is a tremendous blessing when God makes the decision to breathe life into existence. It's no light thing. Genesis 24, verses 3 through 4 says, And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. This was Abraham, the friend of God, the prophet of God, speaking to that faithful servant. And it's not just a, a small conversation. It's a vow, if you recall, where the servant had to put his hand beneath the, the, the calf or even beneath the loins of Abraham and swear to this vow that he would keep it. And, the, and this faithful servant took it most seriously, that this be the vow, that it be successful, that God be besieged, and the, the servant himself beseeched God, as you recall, praying unto the Lord that his master not come back empty-handed, that his master's uh, plan and hope and desire be met with the fulfillment of God's will. Seems pretty important to Abraham based on these words. It seemed important enough to commission a servant to go. His and I know we've hit this when we went through Genesis 24, but this was his most faithful servant. This was somebody that Abraham was going to miss as he was away. Someone that Abraham was likely counting on every day for one thing or another. But this mission was so important that Abraham used him. How important should it be to us today? Genesis 2, 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. Verse 23 through 25, of, also of Genesis 2, says, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The spouse, this wife that we reference here, was created to be a help to the man or to her husband. And in marriage, they are called to be bone of bone and flesh of flesh, departing from their previous home, leaving mother and father, and forming a new home, a new organism, if you will. They are to be unashamed of their union. They are to stand for their union. They are to desire their union. They are to be faithful to this union. They are to take serious this union as a vow before God. They are to uphold this union. The second and final point that we have for tonight is old Isaac's request for Esau's venison. And I know we've made some references to it before, so there's not a whole lot left for us to say about it. Old Isaac's request for Esau's venison. At this point, Isaac was assuredly uh, over 100 years old, likely to be in his 130s. 
since he was 60 when Jacob and Esau were born, and we already saw a few verses before that Esau is now 40, and they are twins, so of course they're both 40. He was, however, not as near death as his words seemed to convey. He would live until he was 180 years old, according to Genesis 35, verses 27 through 29, which I'll read in a minute. Uh, but to do the math real quick, that's another 50 years from this point. I don't know if his desire was for Esau to keep getting him venison every day for 50 years, uh, or if he really felt that death was just on the door. Uh, he probably should have been crying out to the Lord. He probably should have been having conversations about spiritual matters. Uh, but his heart was on venison. Genesis 35 that I referenced that, that speaks to his age at his death says, And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were an hundred and fourscore years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. One thing to note, since we are looking at the book of beginnings, and this is an exhaustive study on this book itself, is that we're starting to see shorter lifespans for sure. But between Abraham and where we are now, we're starting to see a decay in health as these men age. I mean, 50 years before his death, and we know 130 now to be very old, but 50 years before his death, he already feels death's cold hand approaching. So it's very significant for us to see that as we go through this timeline that, you know, Abraham was working, as far as we can tell from the text, all the way through, still having wells dug, still leading his tribe, not looking to a servant to step into the throne room uh, of sorts, but he was still making these decisions. He's still purchasing caves. He's even getting married after Sarah died, still siring children, as we talked about towards the end of his life. But Isaac feels death's approach 50 years early, uh, seemingly described here almost as though he's bedridden. So we start to see the decay in health as well. It reveals his expectation to give a blessing to Esau. And it's really confusing because it almost seems as though he's trying to do it without Rebekah knowing. Now, if Isaac and Rebekah both knew the Lord's words while the boys were in the womb about who it was that would serve the other then Isaac already knows what God's plan is on this. And, and it seems to reveal that maybe Rebecca's a little more uh, in tune with this spiritual side of things than what he is, or that she has a stronger desire that God's will be done. But nonetheless, we have to question, what, what is Isaac's desire here? What was God's desire here? Was it truly Isaac's blessing to give away to whoever he wanted? Why was he doing this without Rebecca's involvement? I know when, when we do something, and as I said last week, uh, if it's a surprise, we do it pretty quickly because I'm going to spoil it if we don't. But when we do something unique and special for the children, we do it together, uh, if she can get there in time. And we try to make sure that those big monumental occasions like Zebediah walking last night are shared between the two of us. I couldn't imagine this particular situation where Isaac seems to do this with Rebecca outside the room, and she hears it, she knows what's happening, but she doesn't seem to be in the picture for it. Again, he would have known what God had said. In Genesis 25, verse 23, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So is Isaac rebelling against what he knows to be true? 
Is Isaac deliberately choosing? This one of those uh, commission type sins where he's deliberately choosing that he doesn't like the will of God and therefore he'll have it his way. Folks, that doesn't usually end well. And we, we play the same sort of game from time to time, I'm sure. It doesn't usually end well when the Lord's been very clear what his will is and we exercise our own selfish desires. And there's really no other way to describe it but selfish because that's not what the Lord would have for us. Sad to say, this chapter really depicts the whole family in a bad way. And we were only getting started with Genesis 27. We'll deal with Isaac and Esau here, but the others, uh, we know there's some despicable moments ahead for them as well. Genesis 25, 28 says, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This verse is now going to become very real as we go forward because what was uttered right at the beginning with these two boys is now creating a, a wedge or a great gulf that's going to divide a, a, a cavernous space between a family that should have been one flesh. And that's why we revisited those verses from Genesis 2. It should have, by design of God, if, even if this wasn't Abraham's lineage, by the design of God from the very beginning, this should have been Rebecca and Isaac, two flesh becomes one flesh, a brand new organism with two twin boys, a tremendous blessing as God has breathed life into the world. They should have been one. And yet from the very beginning there in Genesis 25, we saw a division. And now we're going to see the sinful results of this carnal division that rests there. And before we jump ahead and say, well, it's all Isaac's fault. Beloved, it's two flesh made one. When, when Laney turned two, and I was sitting in my favorite video, and I've been thinking about it a lot since Zeb just turned one. But she, she didn't know how to count yet, but you would have thought she did because I was taking a video over and I said, Laney Grace, how old are you going to be? And she says, two. And I said, how old? And she goes, two. But she was right the first time when it comes to marriage. Two. That's how many are here in this relationship. Yes, yeah, two very different opinions, very different opinions at times, but one flesh. One flesh in which the entire home is dependent upon us getting it right with God when there is division. Us repenting and removing and returning unto God. This never happened here. All the way to 130 years old, when death is at the door, Isaac's still crying out for Esau's deer. Not the companionship of Jacob not the one who's about to receive the spiritual blessings of God to come near the bedside that he might receive said blessings, that maybe he might even receive a, a, some spiritual guidance from his father who'd seen some things. But feed me. Note how Isaac depends on his senses. We, we see a lot in this text of feeling, eating, and smelling. And we'll see that as we go into the, the, this next event of, uh, of course, the deception that Jacob's about to be involved in. A lot more of feeling, eating, and smelling. As if the writer is pointing us as hard as he can to the sensual side of this fleshly experience. As spiritual things are removed, all that's left is feeling, eating, smelling, Nothing deeper, nothing that lasts longer. It's the same point in every sermon. Feeling, eating, smelling. 
these surface sensual uh, experiences. And God has a use for that. God created that. God has permitted that. God's created things to speak directly to that sensation for us. But it is not to be that which we are most wrapped in. What is it that we are to be most wrapped in? God himself. Worship of him. His will for us. Note also that feeding the body takes priority over doing God's will. A couple of times since we've entered into this household. Isaac at one time laid himself on the altar and was willing to die for the Lord. Trusting that the God that brought them up that mountain, that told them to go up that mountain, would provide himself a lamb as his father said. Let me make it a little more personal. Because Isaac wasn't a child, he was a young man. But still, as daddy said, surely God would do. Come forward in time, and there's a 130-year-old man, a daddy, setting a very, very poor example. He misleads Esau. He misleads, I mean, if you know how this goes, and I'm sure many of us do, think of Esau's broken heart when he comes back. But also what he does for Jacob here. Jacob has to fool his father into obeying God. How different is that from households in which daddy doesn't go to church and mother has to make sure the children go? Or maybe it's the other way around. I knew kids growing up in school that we never saw their dad in church. We thought he passed or left, but he just didn't go to church. It's not too hard to imagine as Catholics uh, they're 30 days away from their last service of the year. Most of those dads come Easter and Christmas, if they go at all. This responsibility to lead this home spiritually, dads, was Isaac's. And what happens because he didn't is deception at the very root. His impact on Esau, his impact on Jacob, his impact on his own wife, detrimental how is it with us? We like to use the phrase, nothing good can come from this. Anything that requires you to be sneaky will not end well. If you have to sneak around to get it, you probably don't need it. It's probably not what God would have for you. And now what he would have for you doesn't always fall out of the sky, but it will never require lying, cheating, and stealing to a to apprehend he will not require that we win souls deceitfully that's why we are to win souls not steal souls not trick souls not kidnap souls a profession bought or stolen will soon long to return to its true master but a soul one is brought through regeneration to a new master one they willingly serve one they have a desire to serve one they desire to be near uh, this is a great warning, this next set of texts that we're heading into as we look at the home of Isaac. What a departure it is from the example that we saw of Abraham. There's things for us to, to, uh, to, to be encouraged by with what we saw previously to this, but we're hitting into dark territory. Um, let us be mindful of the flesh. As I said, with the holiday we're going into, with the, the next 30 days ahead, whatever it is you're choosing to do at that time, 
Let us be very mindful what we feed the flesh, the example we set for our children. Uh, they'll carry that with them. And you don't know when the last time you're going to be a role model for them would be. I would hate for it to be one in deceit.